Fantasy football is fun, right? Right, guys? This is the question I ask myself every year because at this point in the season, I know the truth. But when I start off, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a good time. It's also a really good investment of my money, right? Maybe. Maybe. Because at the beginning of the year, it kind of feels like that. Like, I, I draft my team, and I look and I look at everybody else's team. I'm like, I don't know who you guys are listening to, but my team is amazing. This is like taking candy from a baby. I am going to dominate you. And then in the first couple weeks when your top players all get hurt and you're looking at your team, it feels a little less like free money and a little more like gambling blindly. A little more like just burning your money. In fact, that's kind of how it feels when I do any kind of investing, let's be real. But the, the truth is, if I feel like sometimes if I have just the right advice, if I put my faith in the right person, it'll be okay. When I was growing up, my dad did some investing on the side. Um, he tried to retire early and do some investing right before the stock market crashed, and so then he went back to work, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but during that time, he said, Dan, I want to teach you some of, of these investing things. So he gave me $200 to invest for myself. And I immediately put it into some penny stock that was worth like two cents that very quickly went to like two-tenths of a tenth of a tenth of a tenth of a cent. Uh, and so then I was done investing. And I thought I was doing good, but, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Well, as I've gotten older, I've learned that you make better investments and you do things that are you know are going to make a return. And then the pandemic hit, and I had a little bit of money put aside, and I discovered cryptocurrency. And I thought... This could be the next Apple. I know where I'll put some little bit of money that I have. But I learned, right? I learned in the past that I can't just blindly go and hope. I had to find someone to put my trust in. And so I found a YouTuber. (laughs) I found a YouTube sensei that I could follow for a little bit and feel really good about because they seemed to be showing up. It was someone who looked kind of like this. I I can't remember the exact person, but uh, something like this. Well, let me tell you, 10 out of 10, I do not recommend following the advice of a person like this when it comes to cryptocurrency, because although I made a few small gains, eventually the market did what the market does, and following this person didn't help. And so now I have very little money in cryptocurrency. But the truth is, we end up putting our faith in people and in things, hoping that they're going to live up to our expectations, hoping that they are what they claim to be. Don't even get me started on the Vikings and the Giants. Sometimes... People don't just live up to your expectations. But this series has been all about expectations and whether they're rooted in things that matter and things that are real. You see, Pastor Chris and Pastor Jason have started us through this series called Why Jesus, where we get to look at the evidence for the person of Jesus, the evidence for what his followers did in response to his life, and then the evidence of the Gospels and how accurate they may be. Well, today, we get to look at the question of, if Jesus existed, if Jesus is represented by these Gospels, who did he claim to be, and how should we respond to that? Up to this point in the series, we've been dealing with logic, with cold, hard facts, with, you know, cold case stuff. We've been recommending this book, which is awesome, and I shouldn't use that voice with, but it's too hard, because it's called Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace, and I can't help it, but... 
but this, this book in this series, we've been diving into the cold hard facts of is there evidence, reliable evidence that this happened, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that the gospels are real? Do we have a reasonable grounds for the faith that we share? And, and so far, I think we've made a good logical case that you at least can't dismiss what the gospels say. You can't dismiss the validity of this book and of the person of Jesus. This is my Bible, just to be clear. Well, the question that that leaves us with is, what did Jesus say? Who did he claim to be? And what do we do with it? See, that matters because the Bible shows us a Jesus who didn't just claim to give you three steps to a healthier life under Roman rule. He wasn't just a teacher who, who taught a, a, you know, uh, how did I put it here, a moralistic therapeutic deism. He wasn't even a Jesus who came to fulfill the expectations of a Jewish Messiah that would free them from Roman occupation. Instead, Jesus came as the Messiah, but he also claimed to be God and allowed himself to suffer and die innocently at the hands of men. Since Jesus doesn't fit the box of any other person that's ever lived, what do we do with his claims and with his life? What does it mean for us? Before we get there, I want to pause here and invite you to consider something. I want to invite you to ask yourself, who do you think Jesus is? What are your expectations for Jesus? And I think this is applicable if you follow Jesus from, from the cradle on up or if you don't call yourself a Christ follower at all. Because we all carry in expectations of who Jesus is. Maybe you see him as a moral teacher. Maybe you see him as a wish granter, someone you pray to and he gives you what you need. Maybe he's an example to follow or maybe he's none of these things. But the truth is we carry an expectation for Jesus before we even get to the text we're looking at today. And I want you to be honest with yourself. What expectation do you have for Jesus? Because I think all of us might need to adjust our expectations in light of the evidence of the Gospels, and in light of what Jesus says. Well, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to the book of John, chapter 14. And as you're getting there, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to download the Bible app or head over to Bible.com because you're going to want this in front of you. I can't tell you how important it is to have the Bible's words in front of you as we're talking And as you flip, if you're flipping pages, you would pass by these seven I am statements in the book of John. There's these seven statements where Jesus describes who he is using a metaphor or an example. And someday we're going to hopefully do a series on each of these statements, a series where we walk through them all. And if you're hoping I do that today, I'm sorry to disappoint you. You're going to have to wait to this potential future sermon because today we're only going to have time to really look at one of them. In John chapter 14. So instead, I'm going to invite you, if you want to see these statements, read through John and explore them for yourself and learn who Jesus is from his words. And so join me here in John chapter 14, verse 6. It says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
As I said, in each of these statements, these I am statements, Jesus claims to be something. He uses a metaphor, describes what he is or will accomplish, what he is accomplishing or what he will. And here in John 14, he claims to be what? The way, the truth, and the life. Well, to understand what Jesus means by this, it might be helpful to peek back a little bit, to look at chapter 13 and see what Jesus has said right on the heels of these comments. If you were to do that, if you were to look back at chapter 13, you'd notice that this comes right after the Last Supper, right after Jesus has uh, spent his last meal with his followers and Judas has left to betray him. It says he goes out, and before they reach the garden, they have this conversation, including John fourteen six. And if you were to look at the end of chapter 13, you would see these words. It says, And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. With these words, Jesus does what he does throughout the book of John. He sets himself up as God. He identifies the glory of God and his glory in what he's about to do in taking on the cross as one and the same. The glory of Jesus in his obedience unto death and the glory of God, the one true God, are hand in hand. We see John showing us the paradox of the incarnation on full display with these words. When we're asking who Jesus claims to be, at least when it comes to the words in the book of John and the Gospels, we see him claiming to be a part of the divine trinity. We see Jesus claiming to be God. You know, this serves as a reminder, if we were to jump back to the first sermon in this series and to jump back to the beginning of John that Chris mentioned, we would see this even at the start. Look with me here at how the book of John opens. It says this in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not made anything that was made. The book of John starts with this fact. It sets us up to understand that through Jesus, everything was created, that he was there at the beginning. And we go on to find out that it's through him that we even continue to exist at all, that he is it. John makes this point over and over again. And the verses in chapter one continue to remind us. It says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't think it's simple, even though we gloss over it sometimes. We have to grasp that the Bible claims Jesus is God. The Gospels make it clear. John tells us again and again and again and again. We see Jesus displaying his power and his wisdom and his purpose. If we trust the text... If a reasonable case has been made that this is accurate, then we have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus claims to be God, that Jesus identifies himself as God. He's the one through whom life was given and through whom life is sustained and the only way to life after this life.
Jesus is sent to death by the Romans because of these claims, right? It's when he claims using the words, I am, in response to a question by one of the Pharisees that they ship him off to be crucified. It's the very same words that God gave Moses. Tell them, I am sent you. Unless you can disregard entirely the credibility of the Bible, unless you are absolutely certain that the words in John were never uttered, then you have to wrestle with this idea because of the immensity and the importance. And if you accept it as true, we still have to wrestle with what it means that God came in Jesus. Because the truth is, people have already died as a result of this claim. They've already laid their lives down as a result of this claim. Because it matters so much to them, shouldn't it matter so much to us? But the truth is, it's, it's kind of hard for us to internalize this truth, right? I can say it out loud, but it's hard to grasp. The fact that Jesus is Messiah and God makes sense, kind of, but then when you try to grasp what it means, it can kind of feel like it slips through your fingers. And that's okay because it took the disciples literally all of Jesus' earthly ministry to grasp this fact, right? They didn't hold on to it and get it from day one. If we go and look, you know, look at Peter. He's always good for a good gut check, a good, like, how we doing? And if you look in chapter 13 at what Peter says, he clearly doesn't fully get it. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Clearly, he doesn't fully understand. Clearly, he doesn't get that Jesus is saying he's going to die. But even so, you can tell that he's willing to die. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't fully get it? He doesn't really grasp that Jesus is God, and yet he's saying that I'm willing to die for you. Do you remember uh, last week? Pastor Jason took us through the account of Matthew and the account of Luke when it came to the calling of Peter. Well, whether you do or not, I want to go back there and look at it, not for corroborating evidence of whether this can be trusted, but as an insight into Jesus and Peter. If you jump uh, with me to Luke chapter 5, you'll see these words. It says, On one occasion... The crowd is pressing in to hear the word of God. He, being Jesus, was standing by the lake of Senaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking to Simon, he said, put out, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. I like to imagine this moment that Peter was fishing. I like to imagine that he had his version of a crypto sensei. He had the person who was that but for fishing. You guys all know the guy I'm talking about. I think of Keith Mermel at our church. It's the guy who can literally catch a giant walleye out of a puddle. Like, he will, he does things that just don't make sense. You want to be on fish, you go with that guy. I'm sure all of us who've been fishing have someone in mind. 
I think Peter, as a expert angler, as someone whose life is based around that, had his person that he put his faith in on how do you catch fish out of this lake. He's not just gambling like some of us do with things like fantasy football. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus starts talking about the truths of the gospel. He starts showing him things about God that he didn't understand. And then he tells him to go out in the lake and throw down his nets. And what happens? They're full. Not just full. More full than he's ever seen. They are literally bursting. He's never seen this many fish at one time in his nets. Luke continues by saying this. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled the boats, and the boats began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Not only does Jesus blow the advice of the best fishermen that Peter knew out of the water, but he's also clearly a prophet from God. Peter recognizes this isn't just another fisherman sensei. This isn't just another wise teacher. This is something categorically different who, who is connected to God in a way that I don't fully understand, but I know I don't deserve to be here. He's like, you don't want to be associated with me, and I'm scared to be associated with you. And I think it's kind of a reasonable response in light of what happened. And yet what's interesting is that Jesus knows he's a sinful man. He recognizes that what Peter's saying is true. And yet, he doesn't just say, try this next time you're fishing, you'll catch more. He says, I want you to come follow me. And that's just what they do. Luke 5 says that they brought their boats to land and they left everything to follow him. See, Peter had tasted just a sliver of who Jesus was in that moment. And he knew he didn't deserve it. But his response when Jesus invited him was to drop everything. Everything he knew, everything he trusted to follow him. And what's even more powerful is that Jesus invites him despite him accurately saying, Lord, I'm a sinful man. It wasn't based on who Peter was. It was based on who Jesus claimed to be and who he was. What's interesting is we see the same thing happening in John chapter 13 and 14. See, Jesus offers the words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in response to these questions by Peter and also by Thomas, which I think is interesting since Thomas too is the one who's associated with what? With doubting, yes. And so Peter, the one who we're going to see in a second, is the denier. And Thomas, the doubter, are the two asking questions. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? Well, let's look. It says in verse 38 of chapter 13, Jesus answered to, why can't we follow you? Uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. He says, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Well, Peter will, but you also deny Jesus as Jesus says. See, 
Jesus sees Peter in this moment. He sees Peter, the sinful man. He sees Peter, the denier. And yet still to Peter, he responds with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, you can't follow me. And yet you're gonna because of me. If we grasp who Jesus claims to be, it has immense impact on how we live and how we respond to him. Jesus claims to be and is the way, the truth, and the life. He offers to Peter and to his disciples, and he offers to you and I a better way than fishing, better than investing, better than whatever it is that takes the majority of your time and your effort and your anxiety and your willpower and your commitment. Come follow me, and I will give you a better way and a better life. I will give you truth. I will lead you in the way you should go, no matter where you are coming from or who you are when you start. If we were to read the rest of the I am statements in the book of John, we would see Jesus claiming things that resonate with this throughout the book. He claims to be the resurrection and the life and the bread of life and the true vine and the door and the light of the world and the good shepherd. There is so much truth. There is so much meaning packed into each of these statements. And yet we've looked at one. And even in our brief time together, looking only at parts of chapter 13 and 14, a little bit of chapter 1, and this encounter in Luke, we have more than enough to respond to. See, we have a Jesus who claims to be God. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life And he claims to be the only way to the Father. That matters. It matters if Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to God. Now, that sentence, for those of you raised in the church, might not do much for you. It might be like, "Uh uh-huh, I heard that. And I think some of us have gotten a little calloused to that statement, to that idea myself included. Do we really understand what it means that Jesus is the way to the Father? Not even just the only way, but the way to the Father, that no one comes to God except through him? We talked earlier about that moment of creation, right? And I talked about how we try to keep that idea of Jesus in our heads as God and man. When I think about creation and I think about Jesus being there, I still picture like the Jesus from the chosen, right? I picture this man being there and somehow creation happening through him. That's something my mind can grasp onto. But the infinity of God, I don't know how to grasp onto that. I don't know how to keep that in my head. How does one come to an infinity without losing oneself entirely? I was trying to imagine what this could be like. It's like, have you guys seen those movies where like someone gets dropped into the middle of the ocean and they're like trapped there by themselves? I couldn't find a good picture of it. I got this picture of someone swimming in the ocean, right? And this guy is just swimming in the middle of a peaceful sea and you don't know how far the ocean extends. But if you've seen like the middle of the ocean with the big swells and the big waves, nothing is more terrifying in my mind than the idea of being in the middle of that by myself, with no idea where land is or if there's land anywhere across the horizon. And that's my experience as this tiny little bundle of cells on this little puddle on a planet that is just a speck in the grandity of the universe that expands near infinitely that God created 
with a word. And I think I can come to that God without Jesus, without at least some floaties. Guys, if you go to that God, it's like going to that ocean. What's going to happen if you go to that ocean? You're going to get dropped in, you're going to get wet, and you're going to get swallowed up. The truth is, if I come to God on my own terms, what I deserve and what I should expect is to get swallowed up. I need something to help me there. And Jesus says it's through me that you can not only be in the presence of God, not only not get swallowed up, but know him, but experience life through him, but recognize you are a child of God through him. Do we understand that to know the God of the universe is what Jesus offers us when he claims to be God and then dies on a cross and comes back to life? Really, the slide shouldn't just say Jesus is the way to God. It should read like this. Jesus is the way to God. We do not grasp the immensity of the God that Jesus is a part of, that Jesus is. If this book is accurate, and I believe that we've so far presented a reasonable case that it is, then we have to wrestle with these claims. We have to wrestle with the facts that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. If he is the truth that he claims, then it changes everything. Earlier in this series, Pastor Chris put this slide up on the screen from C.S. Lewis. He said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of utmost importance. If Christianity is true, then Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. That is reality. Jesus has been that since the beginning. And if the Bible is accurate, then this verse is an offer. It's an opportunity. It is a chance for all of us to accept the invitation to the way, the way of Jesus. To accept an invitation to learn the truth, the truth about who God is and what he wants us to do. And it's an offer to life. Life now, life with purpose, life in God's plan, life with that immense ocean at your back, sending you in a direction, but also life everlasting. We have an opportunity if Jesus is who he claims to be, to experience a depth of faith and life and truth that we couldn't know before. In fact, if we were to continue in John 13 and 14, we see in verse 12, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, In my name, I will do it. This isn't the promise of a magic rabbit's foot. This isn't a Jesus who fills your expectations by giving you whatever you want. But it is an invitation into something bigger. It's an invitation into God's plan where God can make all things possible. Where God can work out the wonder of all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's an offer that's big enough for an impossibly big God who would choose to enter the world as an infant baby and die an innocent death on our behalf. And I believe it's an invitation beyond are the gospels accurate, an invitation beyond was Jesus a real person. It's an invitation into a conversation beyond that, 
a conversation with the God of the universe who will walk with you. And it's an opportunity to speak to Jesus, the one who spoke the world into creation himself. Friends, Jesus is the way to a truly fulfilled life. He's the way to experience that life. Not because we get what we ask for, whatever it may be. Not because our circumstances are always changed or altered. Not because we'll never experience any doubt or pain or uncertainty. But because Jesus is with you in those things. And he offers you hope beyond those things. He gives you an opportunity to be a part of his plan and his purpose and his church. As we long and wait for him to come again. Pastor Jason and Pastor Chris have given us plenty of reasons to take this book, the Bible, seriously. And I want to invite you now to take Jesus' words seriously. To take his claims on who he is and how we should respond to God seriously. If Jesus is who he claimed, then his invitation and what he offers That's something I want to respond to. That's something I want all of us to respond to. I want to taste and see that Jesus is who he claims to be and that he's good. And I want that for you as well. If you've never done that, if you've never accepted that offer, that invitation, I want you to consider it. I want you to spend time asking, who do I expect Jesus to be and who does he say that he is? And if you've done that and you've walked away, you've become unconvinced, you've become uncertain, well, I want you to ask if there's even a chance Jesus is who he claims he is, then come back to that invitation and see if he doesn't meet you there. And for all of us, whether we feel certain about Jesus being who he says he is, we're not there yet. There's an invitation to all of us. In John chapter 14, just before we get to the verses that we looked at today, in verse 1 to 3, he says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Friends, I want to be where Jesus is. I want that for you as well. I want to be reminded today of the way and the truth and the life that he promises. I pray that you consider taking his invitation because it's open to everyone and there's no invitation that matters more. God, I pray for myself that I would daily respond to the invitation to know you, to follow your truth and your way and experience your life. God, I pray for all of us that we would daily again bow at the feet of Jesus and say, you are who you claim to be. Help me to be more like you. God, receive our praise, and I pray that you would help us long to join that room that you're preparing for us. In Christ's name, amen.